Hello. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I'm not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. This week, we bring you the third and final installment of the rise and fall of Candace Mossler. Woo! Listen to part one and part two first, you maniacs. <laughs> yeah, baby. It's a trilogy. Yeah. We did it. It was, I will admit, Yes. I might have bit off a little more than I could choose. Sometimes it happens. <laughs> I did not realize as I was writing this script that I was writing like a four hour long script. Right. We thought it would be two parts. Yeah. And we had to basically break it into three at the very end of last week's episode. Yeah. Which you can tell by the janky ass edit that I just heard. I know. You know, I do my best to edit this podcast. You know what I mean? But uh, every once in a while you get one of these. Sounds like we're setting up for one of those verdicts that where someone obviously guilty gets off because everything else fell through the cracks. Right. Well, we'll see. In fact, we'll see next week. <laughs> Pure gold. Many apologies. <laughs> All right. Anyway, remember, this is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So many listeners are like Nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things. Please consider listening to a different podcast. And we might curse and joke around. So if you don't like those types of things, turn us off. All right, Nikki, are you ready to hear the end of this saga? Let's get it over with. Okay, let's get started started okay to make up for my questionable editing choices <laughs> i am going to take the lead here okay and take a stab at doing a concise and not completely unintelligent recap of where we left off last week. I can't wait. You're going to do a great job, and you're always very intelligent, (laughs) so don't sell yourself short. Oh, thanks. All right. So, last week, this is what... How do you... No, we're just rolling, baby. Okay. Candlest Mossler and her nephew slash lover Mel very obviously killed Jack Mossler. More specifically, Mel brutally stabbed him to death 39 times or stabbed him 39 times to death. Okay. (laughs) Mel has been arrested, but so far, Candace has not. The police have all the evidence they need to convict Mel, but got it in all these super shady ways. Okay. Candy got Mel, one of the best, most dramatic lawyers in the South. His name is Percy Foreman. So far in his career, he's won hundreds of cases and only lost one. And uh, pretty much the dread is really starting to set into my heart, and I'm getting the feeling that the clearly guilty are not going to get convicted. Okay? So while the prosecution is building its case, Mel is in custody, but Candy is still free. Okay, Uh, and where we left off is that Candy is flying around the country, definitely most likely, but for sure, faking leukemia and running her murdered husband's businesses. Great job, Nick. Thank you. Speaking of a great job, we're just going to do a hard cut edit and just jump into where we left off uh, where we left off last week. So we're coming in hot. Is everyone listening? Get ready. Here we go. While this is all going on, 
Candace is having the time of her life. Of course she is. She's flying back and forth from Minnesota to Texas to run Jack's businesses while only taking breaks to get treatment at the Mayo Clinic, in mm-hmm. quotes, yeah, and to hold these massive press conferences where all she does is talk about Jack and her life with Jack and his insatiable need to have sex with random strange men, Mm -hmm. saying the governor's lodge was sometimes filled with large groups of men there for sex, and, you know, just for the record, no residents ever recalled seeing anything like that. Yeah. Like, they were like, there were not parades of men coming to this apartment. (laughs) Nobody remembers that. Right. So Candace would basically bring her kids to these press conferences to sort of corroborate what she was saying. Uh But this is what she's saying to the press. She insists that Jack would get drunk and bring, you know, upwards of six strangers to the apartment at a time that he preferred rough looking tough guys and was always bragging about how rich he was. So she was absolutely certain one of these men murdered Jack for his cash. Uh Uh One man in particular, Candace said, used to arrange huge orgies for Jack and in return, Jack would loan him these large amounts of money, of which there's absolutely no record of uh-huh. any of these loans. Right. And that that guy probably murdered Jack, so Jack didn't have to pay back the loans. Then Candace drops this other bombshell to the oh, press. No. Oh, no. <laughs> she says, I think he'd be living today if the doctors in Houston hadn't told him he might have had lung cancer. He always told me he had six months to live. So this is how it went, according to Candy. Uh Basically, Candy says when he got his diagnosis, he didn't trust American doctors, so he decided to go to some European health spas in Romania. Which is where he was born. Right. And it was there in those health spas that he accidentally became gay. And ultimately, (laughs) it was the diagnosis that led him to the spas that in turn led him down this path of reckless behavior, you know, sleeping with these tough guys Uh that resulted in his murder. All right. Now, just for the record, (sighs) Uh according to his autopsy, Jack did not have cancer on any level. There was no lung cancer, so it's literally made up. Are there records of of doctors telling him he did have lung cancer? No. Candace is literally Literally just making all that up. But like holding these grand national press conferences to do it. She's just shooting from the hip. She's just riffing. Right. And also for the record, as we mentioned before, Jack Mossler's a pretty low key guy. Like while Candace is out spending money and being really ostentatious and trying to do all this stuff, Jack Mossler basically just worked. That's all he did. Yeah. He didn't like to go to clubs. He didn't like to show off his wife. He didn't like to do anything, which is part of why I think Candace was unsatisfied with that relationship. Yeah, right. I mean, he was having affairs, if I remember correctly. They were both having an affair, but yeah. his were kind of low key, whereas Candace's are like <laughs> public to the nine with Chuck Berry. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also want to say, you know, Candace's defense team couldn't find a single person to testify that Jack was sexually predatory or had these wild gay orgies. Yeah. And even if he was, it really had nothing to do with anything. He was the murder victim. You know, it yeah. doesn't matter. <laughs> he was the victim of the right, thing. Right, They're right. putting Jack Mossler on trial at the very beginning. And the defense definitely runs with that throughout the entire trial. Yeah. And this book really does a great job of giving you the context of 
what was going on, right? Because part of what's happening is that the story is super sensationalist. And of course, it's ridiculous for Candace to say, oh, he went to a spa and accidentally became gay. And so he came yeah, back and started yeah, having yeah. orgies. Like, yeah. obviously, that's an insane, sensationalist thing to say to newspapers. Yeah. But she's also using being gay as a slur to attack Jack's reputation. Totally. You know, yeah. because of the time it was in the US in the sixties, it's people really latched on to that and they were like, oh, you know, it's scandalous, right? Right. She's weaponizing homophobia. Right, exactly. Yeah. And there was a lot of stuff going on at the time we're not going to go super into, but there were a lot of critical witnesses mm -hmm. that needed to be flown into Florida who were funneled into these segregated situations mm -hmm. where the white witnesses were given rooms at nice hotels by yeah. the beach yeah. and the black witnesses were giving hotels in the middle of the downtown area and yeah. the poor areas. Yeah. The white witnesses were giving stipends to live off of while mm -hmm. they were there. And one of the most crucial black witnesses that mm -hmm. the state called was given a job. They were like, oh, don't worry, we'll hook you up with a garage that's down the street so you can survive being here to testify. Damn. Yeah, and like I said, the book does this great job of contextualizing everything. Yeah. We don't really have the time to go into all of that, right. but I felt like it deserved a quick mention. Totally. Just to give us a sense of the history and the culture that was surrounding this trial right. you know because another other things play into it as well like classism is such a huge thing yeah and so they have a parade of witnesses coming through we'll talk about yeah that are from this really low economic status and then you have candace mosler at this high economic status and they just really trash the characters of anyone who has a criminal background or uh -huh. has like a blue collar job right you know, as being unreliable or stupid you know totally in the same way that candy moss are saying well he was having sex with men and i'm sure one of those scary people killed him exactly yeah yeah so while candace is holding her press conferences <laughs> and jet setting around the country right around this time the prosecution catches a solid break and ultimately Three separate men came forward claiming Mel and Candace had tried to pay them to kill Jack. Yeah. They don't know each other. Uh -huh. They're completely separate. They uh -huh. all have different stories and all of their stories are very similar. Uh -huh. So with that, investigators finally felt they had enough evidence to bring Candace into custody. I have one quick question about the possible assassins. Mm -hmm. Were they known to be killers or were they just random people that were like no i don't kill people for money most of them were people who kind of peripherally worked for the Moslers. one uh -huh. of them worked for a carnival it was just people they thought on were on the edge and would do anything for a couple bucks exactly yeah. you know mel you know did know some convicts yeah. you know before he hooked up with candace so he had some people he could talk to all of his roughnecks when they were just <laughs> conning nice country folk out of money for magazine subscriptions right like he had that those guys uh -huh. but some of these people were just i think candace just being like that guy looks scary ask him <laughs> yeah totally so Candace was arrested at the Miami International Airport on July 23rd, 1965, in the center of a media firestorm. Mm -hmm. Her plane lands. It's swarmed by press. Yeah. There's hundreds of flashbulbs going on. Yeah. She's being led down the jetway. And the whole time, Major Manson Hill is in the wings He's so mad, obviously, and he wants to arrest her. But the optics 
of this big, scary Florida detective detaining, you know, Candace Mosler, who's very fancy, but yeah. also tiny. She's yeah, yeah, barely yeah. five feet tall. She's, you know, super petite, mm-hmm. little tiny person. He doesn't want to manhandle her and put her in handcuffs. Yeah. So they're trying to avoid those optics. Yeah. And he's standing in the with a female <laughs> officer to the side trying to figure out a way to snatch her and get her into the car. Yeah. But Candace is just taking her time. She's talking to reporters. <laughs> well, she's been waiting her whole life for the flashing paparazzi. She's dreamed of the, you know, the bright lights for all these years. Yeah, right. So Candy turns to the press and she says this. She says, the police have not followed up on any real leads. They have taken the word of junkies and winos because they want to pin it on Mel and I. If they couldn't pin it on Mel, they'd try and pin it on my little boy, Chris. They would even try to convict Jesus Christ. They don't want to admit they have the wrong man. This is Russia. <laughs> oh, so she's just going off, man. She's just throwing Hail Marys out here. So after this... You know, Manson's like, just arrest her. (laughs) They take her to custody (laughs) right from the jetway. (laughs) On August 5th, 1964, the whole circus, Candace, Mel, prosecutors, defense attorneys, Mm -hmm. everybody, they all attended the Habeas Corpus hearing, which is basically this hearing for the prosecution to show their cause for charging Mel and Candace with murder Mm -hmm. and to determine things like whether they should be released from jail until the trial or get a reduction of the charges among a a list of other things. Mm -hmm. So at this hearing, there were issues with forensic evidence produced by the prosecution. There were mishandled pieces of evidence with disrupted chains of custody. Mm -hmm. There was also a hair that was found on Jack's body that didn't match Mel, Rita, or any of the Mosslers. Mm -hmm. There was still no murder weapon. And the three men willing to testify that Candace and Mel tried to hire them to kill Jack were all convicts drug addicts and or carnival workers so <laughs> you throw a carnival worker in <laughs> so at the end the defense scored a decisive win with the evidence against candy and mel so far being thin mm-hmm. so both mel and candace were released on bond pending their trial date so they posted fifty thousand dollars bond and they were able to leave jail damn big percy got a Lead off home run. He did. Yeah. The prosecution also got some other really bad news. The decision was in, and due to police misconduct, Mel's confession would not be allowed into evidence. Uh-huh. And neither would Mel's set of bloody clothes. Because oh, really? That warrant is based on the confession. Man, you'd think, okay, confession can be coerced, but blood in clothes. You can't base things that you gathered on faulty things right i mean that makes sense i i get it okay we have to yeah i get it (laughs) i get it we are experts yes (laughs) i just go on emotions you know it's just like well it seems like it should work i know i know and i'm here to rein you in all right so on february 1st 1966 the trial began with hundreds of people lined up outside the Miami courtroom hoping to get a spectator seat. (laughs) Would you ever want to go watch a trial like this? Yeah, maybe. 
it just everything is always like everyone wanted to see what they had to do in the court. It's well, like, it's before I, smartphones. All right, let me talk. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> all right. If you keep interjecting, this episode is going to be like four hours. Long. Okay, I'm on um, uh, task. Okay, here we go. <laughs> so immediately it becomes clear that in terms of showmanship, Percy Foreman and Candace Mosler were absolute titans. Mm-hmm. So due to her tendency to use her children as media props, presiding judge George Schultz banned the kids from the courtroom. But that didn't even phase Candace. <laughs> this tiny blonde chick marched into court dressed and acting like a Southern Belle movie star in big black sunglasses, waving to the gallery and the press <laughs> and basically practically blowing kisses. You yeah, know? right, right. Mel, for his part, was decked out in these luxurious tailored suits purchased by his aunt. And Percy Foreman glowed with the heat of 1,000 suns. <laughs> Wow, good writing, Muriel. Thank you. And because he had done much of the heavy lifting early on in the case, Assistant State Attorney Arthur Hutto was the first to speak for the prosecution mm-hmm. during opening remarks instead of Gerstein. So the court settles in, the spectators are waiting with bated breath, and everyone's waiting for the dank juice. <laughs> so Hutto walks up, in his boring gray suit yeah. and made the trial of the decade sound like a bowl of oatmeal getting cold. <laughs> he didn't hit on the thing everybody wanted to talk about, which was the incest thing. Uh-huh. But he also didn't make like the argument sound shocking. He just laid out the facts of the case and then took a seat in a silent courtroom. <laughs> oh, no. Percy Foreman was up next. Yeah. And, you know, the the courtroom is quiet. Mm-hmm. You can kind of hear crickets chirp. Mm-hmm. People were feeling let down by yeah. Hutto's <laughs> opening remarks. Uh-huh. And in this silence, Percy Foreman just leans back in his chair and sits there with his eyes closed <laughs> for so long that Judge Schultz had to ask him if he was ready to present. Yeah. And then Percy Foreman shoots his eyes open and he gets up in his preacher voice and he yells, we are indeed ready, your honor. (laughs) (laughs) Is that effective? That just sounds like he's... He's shocking everybody. uh It's super quiet. Uh No, I get it, but it doesn't seem like shocked into... A uh, competent lawyer, but that's what I'm saying. Uh-huh. Is like part of his thing is these different acts. Sure, he's okay. just throwing people off. They're like, why is he doing that? Uh-huh. Is he asleep? <laughs> yeah, is he totally. saying it's so boring? Yeah. Oh, now he's gonna pop up and start yelling. Like this yeah. is how he does stuff. All right. Percy Foreman said a lot of things at trial, and he said a lot of things in this opening remarks section. Here's a small excerpt to give you a taste of what he was up to. So this is the quote from the transcript. I cannot wait. The state has told you that Jacques Mosler was stabbed in excess of 39 times. If each one of those 39 knife wounds on Mosler's body was inflicted by a different person, there would still be many times that number of persons left with justification. What? Do you not understand that? No, I don't understand that at all. I'm too like new school and dumb to follow this old, old school poetic way of speaking. He's saying that there's just tons of people out there in the world with justifications looking to kill Jack Mosler. Yeah. Okay. 
Jack Mosler practiced every form of sexual deviation found in textbooks. He had them all. Transvesticism, homosexualism, voyeurism. He had every conceivable sexual deviation that anybody ever had. And then he told the court about how Jack slept naked with a tank top on. (laughs) Just like prove his point. Right. Which, to be honest, we did say was pretty weird in part one. Well, you know, but he's real driving it home. I told Uh you it's a big part of the trial. Mosler sometimes posed as a Dr. Wilson. He used that name to approach uh, high school and college boys. He slept with an axe by the side of his bed for people who had threatened him. Jack Mosler laid himself open to blackmail or homicide at very frequent intervals. He was a swinger. (laughs) Also, he said... Jack Mosler was as ruthless in business as any pirate that ever sailed the seas of commerce. They were auto dealers that had been ruined by the machinations of Jack Mosler. He repossessed cars by the thousands and ruined many independent car dealers in the Miami area. Brutal, inhumane, ruthless, indecent, and cold-blooded. Damn. All right. So he's just saying this guy basically had a lot of people who wanted to kill him and they were all kind of right. He yeah. sort of deserved it. He deserved to die. That's his opening defense, <laughs> which, you know, pretty wild. Well, he is 350 wins to one single loss. He knows that the people want to hear. Yeah. So Nick, yeah. my love. Yes. I know you think that trials are boring. Uh huh. So I decided to give you a highlight reel of shenanigans. Okay, great. A brief synopsis and then a verdict. Okay, cool. The ins and outs of this trial are pretty crazy. Uh-huh. And again, I couldn't recommend the book enough. Uh-huh. That is, no one is perfect. Right. But if we covered the specifics of the whole thing, we'd probably be here for hours. So okay, I'm going to give you the meat and no potatoes. Okay, good. But hopefully a little gravy. Oh, my God. <laughs> There's some hot sauce in there, too. Okay. Okay. So on to the parade of my favorite highlights from the trial. Good. Good. good, good. At one point, Gerstein and Percy Foreman got into a screaming match that triggered Foreman into having a diabetic attack. Oh, no. And Foreman had to take a break and drink a can of orange juice. So he got beat up one trial and then this another? Okay. They got into a huge fight. It's actually... Very funny, like, because Foreman is from Texas. Yeah. And in Texas, you can, I guess at the time, bring up different uh, convictions Uh as a way to discredit a witness. Yeah. In Florida, you can't. Right. And so they're sitting there cross-examining one of the state's witnesses, which is one of these like carnival slash junkie guys who is testifying against Mel and Candace and Foreman comes in and he throws a stack of the guy's criminal record onto the stand and Gerstein stands up and he's like, are you kidding me? You can't do that. And then Foreman goes, Oh, I didn't know I practiced in Florida. They get this screaming match and Schultz like makes him, you know, backtrack, retract his yeah, statement. Right. And they're doing this whole thing. And then Percy <laughs> Foreman has this diabetic attack and he's drinking his orange juice. And Gerstein is so pissed. And he walks by Foreman and Foreman is smiling out of the corner of his mouth. Like he did it on purpose. Yeah. Right. Like he knew. <laughs> so that's the type of like totally defense lawyer. Percy Foreman is got it. 
All right, so then there's more stuff. After a parade of people who worked for Mel at his trailer lot testified about how Mel always bragged about how much his aunt loved oral sex uh-huh. and told everyone that his aunt likes to sit on his face. So he, <laughs> all <laughs> one by one, all these people just said the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Candace, having to watch this, loses it and she demands to be able to lie down across two chairs in the courtroom <laughs> and the judge tells her to sit up right he says yeah. you can't do that yeah you need to sit up like a normal person she says i can't stand it i have to lie down <laughs> yeah right let's get some more orange juice in here please so to get back at the judge the next day she just straight up didn't come to the trial uh-huh. <laughs> and her doctor told the court that candace was sick plus Candace had hurt her neck after slipping on a banana peel. <laughs> oh, so they had to adjourn, adjourn court. They didn't have it that day. And then the next day yeah. when Candace came back, she's like wearing this pink suit for Valentine's Day uh-huh. and totally like waving at the cameras. But that day she didn't know the prosecution was about to bring out a surprise witness. So she comes back. Uh-huh. She's feeling better. She's dressed to the nines for Valentine's Day. And the state brings out the guy who used to do the ma- magazine subscription scam with Mel. Yeah. Who then becomes the fourth person to tell the court that Mel and Candace tried to pay him to kill Jack. Mm. And his testimony in particular was pretty damning against uh-huh. Candace, like specifically. So halfway through his testimony, Candace starts screaming and holding her head. And then she looks around and collapses on the floor. <laughs> So they had to rush her to the hospital and her doctor later said she was having stress seizures from Uh the trial. Uh So she's rushed to the hospital and then the next day she shows up again, but now she's wearing a neck brace because her banana injury was acting up. (laughs) And this would be the only day she wore the neck brace in the entire trial. (laughs) Also, one time when the judge told Candace that she couldn't keep interrupting the proceedings by yelling liar at people. Yeah. She looked him in the eye, asked her nurse for a vial of ammonia, broke it in half and sniffed it. Like, I dare you to tell me I won't faint again. Like, <laughs> the ammonia is to keep her from, F- from fainting. From fainting. <laughs> so she wasn't saying she was about to faint. He goes, yeah. you need to stop calling people liars. Yeah. You have to calm down. You can't be shouting. Yeah. And she just took this vial, broke it in half, <laughs> stared at him and smelled it. Like, <laughs> Maintaining eye contact. Yeah, like, boy, you know, I'll faint again. <laughs> uh, damn. So basically at the end of the day, uh-huh. the defense claimed that the prosecution's case was built on hearsay of career criminals and circumstantial evidence. Because of shady police work, critical components of the case were inadmissible, including mm-hmm. obviously Mel's confession, and there was still no murder weapon or eyewitnesses. Yeah. Also, due to some magician level of argumentation, Percy Foreman was able to get the crime scene photos excluded from evidence as he told the judge they were too prejudicial against his client. (laughs) So they had all the crime scene photos. Yeah. People think that Schultz just really dropped the ball on this trial. Uh Uh-huh. That's the judge. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, it totally worked. The only things that he was allowed to admit were jack's body in the coroner's office with a sheet over it that you couldn't see Mm -hmm. and then a picture of some bloody cabinets in his house but they weren't actually allowed to see 
him wrapped in the blanket or his body or anything. See, we can't we can't show you this evidence. It really obviously proves that my clients are guilty. So we're going to need this stricken from the court of law. That was the argument. Damn. So despite having this obviously massive motive of inheriting a large lending dynasty and a substantial fortune, the defense's position was that there were too many people besides Mel and Candace who could have also killed Jack. Mm-hmm. We're talking various people angry about their business dealings with Jack, all the guys from Candace's made-up orgies. They even brought in this guy. He was an employee of the Mosslers who was a good friend and had worked for them for a long time, and he was super, super handsome. Mm-hmm. And Candace told her defense team that this guy and Jack had... Uh, an affair they were lovers yeah so the defense team gets this man up on you know the witness stand and they start grilling him about this time that jack mosler spent the night at his apartment Mm -hmm. so basically jack mosler's apartment in in florida was Mm -hmm. being renovated and so this guy offered to let jack stay with him and this man is saying completely adamant he says jack wasn't gay and he and i weren't lovers i'm married like blah 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 that didn't happen but on cross-examination foreman got him to admit that jack slept in a shirt with no underpants on (laughs) as if that like proves something really substantial (laughs) the winnie the pooh defense right and then he concluded his questioning by practically wiggling his eyebrows at the jury he was like and uh, I'll be rusting my case. <laughs> oh, no. He's like, that's that. Uh, the guy's on the witness stand just being like, how? Right. The defense also leaned really heavily on the idea that Roy Weissel was the murderer. So do you remember that guy? That I found- have been waiting for a moment to ask about Roy. So remember Roy Weissel yeah. is found on Key, Virginia, beaten up about six miles away from Jack's apartment on the night of the murder yeah. about 30 minutes after they think Jack was murdered. Right. He stumbled into the sewage plant. Right. Yeah. So the state calls him as a witness and in this dramatic courtroom event, he doesn't materialize when the bailiff calls his name. The bailiff calls his name over and over again and Roy Weissel never shows up. Weird. So in my effort to not tell you all of the ins and outs of the trial so you won't get bored. (laughs) This is a piece of evidence that I think is really crucial. It just ended up being uh, like a big part of the decision Uh of the jury. Which I'm dreading at this point. So Roy Weissel not showing up to the trial kind of threw everyone for a loop. Uh And I think because of that, the prosecution didn't really drive home the fact that Roy was thoroughly investigated and his alibi was ironclad. There's mm-hmm. evidence, there's police reports, like everything is sewn up. There's no open question about Roy. Right. But they didn't really drive it home. I think they were uh-huh. thinking they would do that during questioning. And then when that didn't happen, they just didn't pro- produce all of the evidence that they should have. Yeah. And the defense was able to present Roy as a person of interest, Mm -hmm. a substantial person of interest. They say, basically, it was this guy who looked really guilty, who was known for, like, cruising gay, like, sex spots on the beach. He was right by, like, the kind of guy that 
Jack supposedly picked up, according to Candace, uh-huh, uh-huh. right by the house. And that when the cops picked them up, they were all crooked, which at this point... <laughs> the cops were crooked, right. Right. Yeah. And they're probably prejudiced against Candace Mosler and Mel, and they just didn't fully investigate him right right so they're calling roy a person of interest who drove a white car just like the residents of the governor's lodge described as the getaway car and they were able to do that without any objections from the prosecution huh so the prosecution just dropped the ball I think so. Somehow they just didn't. They were just like, yeah, what if the yeah. white Chevy Bel Air wasn't even the getaway car? What right. if th- that was a car that was at the airport and right. Mel did drive it. Yeah. But this guy, Roy, also drives a white huh. car that's uh-huh. very similar to that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they made a super strong point, you know, that many signs according to their defense and Candace and eyewitnesses could easily also point to Roy Weissel as the true murderer. Are you going to get to the freaking verdict here? So in closing arguments, most of the lawyers stuck to a 30 minute wrap up. Percy Foreman went on for five hours. (laughs) (laughs) And after this complete spectacle of a six week trial, the jury was sent out at 7.55 PM on a Thursday night to deliberate. The courtroom was cleared with the expectation deliberations would last for at least a few days. Judge Schultz was shocked when the jury returned to the courtroom 35 minutes later with a split vote, six to six, guilty, not guilty. So what happens in that case? It's thrown out? That's like a mistrial? Well, these guys are like, there's no way we're going to get past this. And he's like, you've only been going for 35 minutes. Go (laughs) home, have some dinner. You have to come back tomorrow. Like, we had to listen to that guy for five and a half hours. We're done. (laughs) So they come back the next day. And they deliberate through Friday. And Saturday morning, they sent a note to the judge saying the jury was hung. They can't come to a consensus. Mm -hmm. So Schultz is like, dudes, you've only been deliberating for 11 hours. (laughs) You kind of have to do this for at least one more day. Mm -hmm. So they go back. And on 1035 on Sunday in the morning, the jury reaches their verdict. For the charge of murder against Melvin Powers... Not guilty for the charge of what murder. What the fuck? <laughs> for the charge of murder against Candace Mossler, also not guilty. Damn, Percy Foreman, three hundred and fifty of one. Candace and Mel jumped into a group hug with all their attorneys, you know, swaying around in the courtroom floor. Yeah. And as the jury left the courtroom, Candace ran over crying to hug and kiss all 12 jurors one by one in front of the press. Oh, my God. After the verdict, Judge Soltz actually did a very rare thing. He asked all 12 jurors into his chamber to ask them how they possibly could have come up with a not guilty verdict. Yeah. And they all said basically the same thing. They said based on the presentation of the defense and particularly in regards to Roy Weissel, there was a tiny chance that Mel didn't do it. Uh Uh-huh. So they just couldn't say he was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. That shadow of a doubt, baby. Yeah. But it turns out that verdict might have hinged on a prosecutorial mistake. Uh Uh-huh. Later, while the jury foreman was talking to a reporter, he was very shocked to find out 
that prosecutors neglected to include the fact that because Weissel's car was verifiably in Miami in that parking lot uh-huh. the entire night of the murder, there was no way he could have driven that white car into Key Biscayne, murdered Jack, and escaped the mainland in that same white car. Yeah. The car I understand. absolutely yeah. did not leave Miami. Right. So according to No One's Perfect, when Miami News reporter William Tucker told this jury foreman, James Harris, about the yeah. evidence, he just basically looked white as a sheet, super freaked out. And then he said, quote, a lot hinged on where that automobile was found. The state goofed very badly in not pinpointing its location. Damn. But it's too late, right? It's too late. Outside the courtroom... Candace announced to reporters, quote, it restores my whole faith in living and people and everything that is good. It's a horrible nightmare that's ended, not only for myself, but for my poor, pitiful children back home crying. I'm going to go tell them now. I left them this morning crying. Two hours after the not guilty verdict, Candace held a press conference with her nephew by her side, flanked by their mutual family in a sort of makeshift Georgia reunion to celebrate. Mel took the opportunity in this press conference to grab the mic and run his mouth about the things he would have loved to say if his lawyers had allowed him to testify. Oh, no. Because this whole time they didn't let Mel say nothing. Uh Uh-huh. So Mel grabs the mic and he says, I was totally in Miami on the night of the murder because I was there to have a business meeting with Jack about financing the production of a new model of trailer he's uh, he had developed called yeah. the Candace. Oh, no. <laughs> so, of course, they're hearing this because a yeah. big part of the trial was like whether or not Mel was actually in Florida, right. why he was in Florida, this whole thing. Because even with you know, the witnesses saying they saw him and these flight records. Yeah. It's still more like circumstantial evidence. There's no eyewitness to place him at the crime. Right. right. There's more like people who said they saw him. Yeah. So a lot of the trial debated about like, was he there? Why was he there? Was he in the apartment? Was that fingerprint that they found the palm print? Was that from a different time? Totally. You know, there was all this argumentation about that. And he starts putting himself in Florida on the night of the murder. <laughs> And of course, immediately, reporters start asking Mel if he had been at Jack's apartment on the night of the murder. And he winds up to tell him what he thinks. But his lawyers just bum rush dumbass (laughs) Mel away from the mic and shut the press conference down before he can answer. (laughs) So they all go back to this hotel, Candace's hotel, and they have this huge party. And a reporter calls Percy Foreman to be like, hey, man, where are you? Are you coming to the party? And he says, quote, I may represent these people, but I don't have to associate with them. Mm. <laughs> he refused to go to the party. Yeah. Also, a side note, Mel's attorney, Percy Foreman, eventually ended up defending James Earl Ray, the man who assassinated MLK. Whoa. Also, another attorney on Mel's defense team was murdered in an unsolved case with a Cuban drug lord being the primary suspect. Yeah. And Gerstein went on to go into private practice. And at one point, he defended Pee Wee Herman in his famous indecent exposure trial. (laughs) (laughs) So that guy's out in the world still fighting the good fight. Mm. (sighs) All right. So afterwards, Mel 
and Candace moves straight back to Houston. They moved back together into the Mossler mansion. Yeah. And, you know, Mel kept doing it with Candace, who continued to pretend that Mel wasn't her nephew. The adopted children who had been so crucial at the press conferences during Mm -hmm. the trial were finally shipped off to their Swiss boarding school. And Mel used Jack's money to start a real estate development company called Mel Powers Investment Builders with the phone number 666-6666. So he could remember it. Uh, <sighs> that's funny. That's all I could say. So Mel's business yeah. actually took off like gangbusters. Uh-huh. He did very, very well for himself. And Candace would often tell the press, quote, Mel is a genius. He is a young, walking Jack Mossler. And no wonder he was taught by the master. <laughs> These dirty, dirty dogs. (laughs) In December 1967, Mel gave Candace a diamond engagement ring, which baffled everyone because it would be illegal for them to get married. So they said, oh, no, we don't have any plans to get married. We just love each other very much. Yeah. Mel hung out in brothels and strip clubs. Uh, Candace had him tailed by private investigators to see if he was cheating. Yeah. Mel got a couple of DUIs. That's how they spent the mid-1960s. And in 1969, Candace did an exclusive interview slash feature story with the Tampa Bay Times about how awesome she was. Mm-hmm. And the centerpiece was a boudoir-style photo shoot with her and Mel together in bed in the Mossler Mansion. Damn. So in March of 1969, after seven years together, the fairy tale ends. Mm. Mel violently attacked Candace after an argument. And then after that, he flew to Mexico. So Candace went to police and reported the assault the day after Mel disappeared, where police documented her bruised face. And then three days later, she went to the hospital for an unspecified, quote, head surgery. Uh Uh-huh. Mel was arrested for domestic assault when he returned to Texas about a week later. But Candace refused to testify against Mel, so the case was dropped. And then Mel and Candy broke up. Candy's family life began to fall apart as well. So Jack's daughters from his first marriage, you remember Mm -hmm. he had four daughters, or as Candace liked to call them, Jack's elderly daughters uh they contested the will and filed lawsuits against candace for mismanaging jack's estate and hiding assets and the girls actually did get their money candace Mm -hmm. ultimately settled the lawsuits out of court her lawyers percy foreman and his team also all sued her too for non-payment oh yeah (laughs) because she tried to just (laughs) stiff them on the rest of their expenses uh they got their money too yeah she put her adopted children's inheritance in trusts that she could control. Mm-hmm. Now, that didn't work out great. And after they all returned from their elite Swiss boarding school in the late 60s, they all became dirty hippies, which drove Candace completely insane. Yeah. <laughs> so Candace basically felt like if you're not going to act right, I'm not going to give you the money, sure. which is not necessarily what Jack had in mind when he said, you're going to inherit part of my estate. For sure. But since Candace is the executor of the will and she's in charge of all those things, she's the one who set up the terms for the trust. Yeah. 
And the kids eventually ended up suing their mother for withholding funds from their trust to punish them for smoking doobies and <laughs> things like that. And they also accused her of generally mismanaging their inheritance money. Mm-hmm. So after a pretty scandalous trial where Candace's worst nightmare came true and all of the her pre-Mossler dirty laundry was aired, yeah. you know, her time in Georgia, her first marriage, yeah, yeah, the fact yeah. she lies about being seven years younger, yeah. all of that kind of stuff came out of the trial. Um, the kids received more monthly money from their trust and they kind of settled everything. Uh-huh. But Candace cut three of the four adopted Mossler children out of her, her will. Damn. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the Mossler Mansion also became a regular stop on tour bus routes, which made all of the upscale people in their River Oaks neighborhood super, super mad. Tour bus? Oh, like touristies were like, this is the mansion. Yeah, oh, like yeah, celebrity yeah. tour routes. Yeah, like, this it. is the famous Mossler Mansion. Yeah, right. But it wasn't all bad. Candace was actually really hands-on with Jack Mossler's businesses and was a competent leader. She actually got into real estate development and did pretty well for herself. Mm -hmm. She ended up amassing a fortune of about $29 million. I guess money makes money. Yeah, that's kind of what I think. I mean, mean, maybe she was good at her job, too. I don't mean to take that away from her, but she had a running start, I guess. Yeah. So in the early 70s, Candace hooked up with a nightclub owner about 18 years her junior named Barnett Garrison and they were married fairly quickly in the spring of 1971. About a year later they had a horrible fight. Candace locked him out of the mansion and he was found the next morning in a coma with a broken hip and ribs on top of Candace's smashed patio furniture in her backyard. Now, Barnett apparently had attempted to climb up the side of the house with a nine millimeter handgun and fallen when a second story gutter broke. So Garrett was hospitalized and would remain in a coma for six weeks. After Garrett woke up from his coma, he was released into his parents' care. He sustained severe brain damage that would keep him from living independently for the rest of his life. And... Candace made one attempt to take custody of Garrett in 1972, showing up at his parents' house in the middle of winter, wearing a mink coat and banging on their front door with a stiletto shoe. Her parents That's a good look. declined the offer. Yeah, right. <laughs> Her mom said she thought uh, Candace was off her mind. She was like, seemed like she was super stoned. Yeah. So in 1973, Candace reported being robbed at Knife Point in Miami. Police found no evidence of the robbery, but they did find Candace to be high as a kite on prescription painkillers. So she skipped town after Miami police wanted to give her a lie detector test. Yeah. And then when she landed in Houston, she called police in Houston to claim she had been robbed again. (laughs) Okay. So she just likes doing that. Right. That robbery also wasn't real. Yes. Candace divorced Garrett in 1974. So that chapter was closed (laughs) Uh, to try to keep her foot in the door of high society in Houston. Candy kept throwing these galas for people who donated to her charities. 
fancy people in the neighborhood wouldn't be caught dead going to her party. So uh-huh. most of the folks were these random people who donated tiny amounts to be able to go inside <laughs> Candy's house. <laughs> like $15 or whatever. Right. So they could go tour the mansion. <sighs> and the rumor of, of the, about the parties was that she'd stay in her room until midnight. And then she'd have like a DJ with a PA system uh-huh. and a light show announce her coming down the stairs. <laughs> To make this like big <laughs> rock and roll star grand entrance. <sighs> so Candace continued to doctor shop and her addiction to painkillers escalated. Yeah, that's rough. She OD'd on Monday, October 25th, 1976 on a business trip after receiving an injectable opioid medication from mm-hmm. her Miami doctor in her hotel room and then taking a handful of the sedative she took every night before bed to help her sleep. Uh-huh. So they wake up the next morning, she's passed away, and her family tried to get rid of all of the syringes and pill bottles and shuttle her body off to the funeral home before police arrived, but they weren't quite quick enough, and police took over the crime scene as a suspicious death. Uh-huh. Candy's Miami doctor, who was also an addict, knew Candace's autopsy would land him in doo-doo given the massive amount of Demerol he had injected into her butt the night before. Yikes. But ultimately, no one was charged with her death. The investigation revealed that Candy had consumed about 30 days worth of sleeping pills in three days. So in her autopsy, her liver was basically saturated in this particular type of sedative. Mm -hmm. And in the final autopsy, Report it stated that her butt was actually rock hard from up to 10,000 injections of painkillers over the years. Whoa, so she had been going and getting these treatments, ah. but the scar tissue from having that many injections oh. had changed like the composition of her body. Oh, it was rock hard from the scar tissue, yeah. Ah, I'm just like rocking back in my seat, that makes my butt ache. Oh, dear. Ah. <laughs> So Mel, by this time, uh-huh. was a straight-up millionaire. His businesses had taken off. Yeah. And he showed up to Candace's funeral with his new blonde girlfriend in a stretch limo. Now, the final kicker is, before she died, Candace had arranged to be buried with Jacques Mosler uh-huh. in the exclusive Arlington Cemetery. After her divorce from Barnett, she changed her name back to Candace Mosler and so qualified again to be buried as a military spouse at Arlington. Huh. And because at the time, burial plots were scarce in this popular cemetery, Candace was literally buried on top of Jacques in his own grave and her name was added to the back of his headstone. (sighs) Candace's son, Norman, one of her only remaining heirs died in 1978 of drug-related causes at the age of 37. Ooh, in 1979, Mel was worth around $200 million. And by 1986, he was completely broke and filed for bankruptcy. What? He died in 2010 at the age of 68. That's a whole other thing. What happened to him to, to lose all... Muriel... Is that the end of your story? Yes. Man, fuck. <laughs> R.I.P. Jacques Mosler, man. That what a crazy and R.I.P. Candace and Norman and man, everyone rest in peace, I guess. <sighs> what a that is just it's like a roller coaster ride that literally never ends. 
just to the top of society all the way down hella loop-de-loops but i guess they're going up whoop and now there's no seat belts on the roller coaster okay all right (laughs) (laughs) he lost all his money yeah (sighs) the little anteater that could all right um muriel tell the people one final time the book that changed your life and ruined my afternoon all right (laughs) No one, it's perfect. The true story of Candace Mossler and America's strangest murder trial by a man named Ron Smith. This book is awesome. I'd super recommend it. There's so many twists and turns. There's huge parts that I wasn't even able to cover. I mean, this dynasty is just... Endless. It's endless. So, yeah. All right, everyone. Well, wish me luck. Now I have to edit this monstrosity. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck, Nikki. Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. Muriel did all the research and I did all the editing and post-production. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. We also draw and animate little bonus content cartoons for Muriel's Murders, which populate our social media feeds. You can find us at Muriel's Murders on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. Our DMs are open, and you can email us at murders at gmail.com. Please rate and review Muriel's Murders on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us grow. And if you're listening on Spotify, please add this episode to a playlist of podcasts you think your friends should tune into. Our music is by Mario Casolini. Find him on Instagram at Casolini Beats. Thank you to Ryan and Ryan at Campfire Media. And if you want more Nick and Muriel, please check out our non-murder podcast, Hella in Your 30s, wherever you get your podcasts. That's it. Bye. Do you like comic books? Do you like brothers? Do you like brothers talking about comic books? Then this is the podcast for you. Screw it. We're just going to talk about comics. Will Hines and Kevin Hines, performers from the Upright Citizen Brigade Theater and actual brothers, talk about actual comic books they love, like Spider-Man, The Fantastic Four, and many more. If you prefer your podcast to be about fictional people talking about fictional books, this isn't it. But otherwise... Screw it. We're just going to talk about comics from Campfire Media. Campfire.